Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. The title of the talk is, It's All in Your Mind. And that title um, is uh, the title of a song that um, I wrote uh, many years ago, before I ever got into um, into meditation or the Dharma. Um, and um, I'm, I'm going to share a, a little bit of uh, uh, my own story as uh, part of the talk. Um, but the reason that um, it's up for me is that um, I was in uh, fantasy recording studios this week recording this song. Fantasy for people. There are many people who who listen to uh, to the talks uh, from all over uh, outside of Berkeley and uh, Fantasy Studios. And how many people know of Fantasy Studios here? Yeah. So it's it's one of the major recording studios um, in uh, around. And uh, it was it was very cool. As I I'd never been actually recorded in fantasy studios, but um, walking through the hall and seeing all these names, uh, Credence Clearwater and uh, and uh, oh, Miles Davis and just on and on, I actually started listing all of them and saying, you know, McCoy Tyner, uh, and, and putting a list on my phone because it was like, wow, all these people have been there. And uh, the reason why I, I ended up, I was there recording was because um, Eve Decker, who's come here and uh, is a wonderful teacher and singer um, and songwriter, uh, is putting together an album, uh, actually she's putting together two albums uh, based on the Awakening Joy course which she used to come in and do a lot of uh, singing for. Um, The course, as many of you know, has 10 themes, and she decided to put together um, a song for each theme um, for for adults, and then one for kids, because I also wrote Awakening Joy for Kids, and she's a a teacher. So um, she's pulling material together from a number of different singers and uh, the one song that's um, that hasn't been recorded before was my song and she asked if I'd do my song as one of the themes and I said oh cool great so uh, it was it was with me um, uh, a lot and I had to practice and so there I was singing a lot <clears throat> and it brought me back to how this song came to be, which is what the the Dharma talk will 
be about not how the song came to be, but the idea about the song. But I'll tell you how the song came to be first. Um, there is a Dharma talk in here somewhere. This is not just completely autobiographical. Uh, James tells his story. Uh, um, but I, uh, I wrote the song when I was, uh, I was about 20, 22, 23. Um, and I lived in uh, Flushing, Queens, New York. I grew up in New York, grew up in Queens. And I had uh, my own apartment. Um, and um, I was going through a really depressed period. Um, depressing period, I should say. Um, actually, I think it was, as I recall, it was shortly after uh, Jimi Hendrix died. And Jimi Hendrix was important for me. In fact, on my, in my bedroom, there was a huge poster of a close-up of Jimi Hendrix just with his hand, his, his chin, and saying, you know, it's all cool. Yeah, okay. He didn't. He wasn't saying that. He was just looking, looking at that. And there was Hendrix, and um, over my bed was a poster of Yellow Submarine, my one of my all-time favorite movies uh, from my my main lineage holders, uh, the Beatles, uh, and the the movie poster at the top of the movie poster is this line, it's all in the mind, you know, George Harrison. That's the top of the poster. So there I was um, in, a, in a funk that I'd been in for some time, um, you know, for weeks or you know, maybe, maybe longer. And uh, I looked up at that and um, saw, it's all in the mind, you know, George Harrison. And then I, I kept on reflecting on that. Oh, this funk is really all in my mind. I just got, I've been stuck in my mind and I can't see a way out. And lo and behold, this never happened to me before or since, um, I was I channeled the song. It was almost like I was, it was being dictated to me. It was really weird um, for like the next hour or so, hour and, yeah, not much more than an hour. And um, it, was, it, was, it was good. It was a, a, four, a, um, a portent of my whole Dharma life. Because as I... Um, I was writing this from some some wise part, of not even me, just some wisdom was coming through me and writing to that hurt place inside, that confused, um, um, down, um, um, really heavy place inside, saying, it's all in your mind. You know, you can choose here. And later on in the in the talk, I'll I'll sing it to you so you can hear the words. 
But the basic idea of it is that um, you have a choice. That's what I was saying to myself. Sweet, sweet boy, you have a choice. If you want, you can get stuck, you can grumble, you can complain and, and think of all your pain. Um, but um, the idea is to, once you see that it's all in your mind, you can at least choose not to feed those thoughts that keep you spinning your, your wheels. And as I and I the other day when I was in the recording studio with with Eve and Julie Wolf, this uh, wonderful producer and musician, and there was this um, engineer and studio musician, great musician with the dobro and all kinds of instruments that they were laying on on top of it. Um, and I was telling Eve and Julie the story. Um, it really, it brought me back to this place that somewhere inside of us knows, or at least when we hear the Dharma and we get a sense of a glimpse into how the mind works, that we have a choice and there's something when we hear it and we take a look and we practice, we see for ourselves all of these thoughts coming out of nowhere and landing, and we can either believe them or see how empty they are uh, and empower them or um, not be at their mercy. And in that, there was something really sweet about coming into wholeness and realizing that, oh, there's this, this confused place inside and there's a really wise, compassionate component of our being that can hold it. So I wanted to talk a bit more about that and I'll, I'll bring in a little bit of um, Buddha Dharma uh, to underscore this wasn't something that I thought up by myself. The Buddha says it uh, very clearly, the very first line of the Dhammapada, I've mentioned it here uh, many times, one translation that I particularly like is, um, we are what we think with our thoughts, we make the world. And then he says, speak or act with a, a usual translation is, is, is an impure mind or a confused mind, I like better, and trouble will follow you as the, uh, uh, the cart follows the ox. And he says, we are what we think. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with a, a pure or clear mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. Um, in this world, no one uh, can harm you. Uh, not even your worst enemies can harm you as much as your thoughts. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. So we are what we think with our thoughts, we make the world. Another great um, uh, writer and commentator on, uh, on Buddhist philosophy, this British 
uh, writer Christmas Humphreys, who was one of the main people who brought Buddhism to to Great Britain, he wrote this line that has always stayed with me. He says, the one miracle this path has to offer is a change of heart. The one miracle this path has to offer is a change of heart. You can't necessarily control your outward circumstances. Often, usually, you can't. You can have maybe a little bit of input. But life happens. But the miracle of practice of the Dharma is seeing that your relationship to what's happening is something that you... Um, have some input and some choice, particularly if you can train the mind and the heart. The one miracle this path has to offer is a change of heart. And uh, one last quote from the Buddha, from uh, a sutta that I uh, I love, from the middle length discourses, Majjhima Nikaya, that's middle length discourses, uh, number 19, there's 152 in the Majjhima Nikaya, and number uh, number 19 is called the Dvevitaka uh, uh, Sutta, also called, translated as two kinds of thought. And this is the Buddha talking. <clears throat> he says, uh, Before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, or bodhisattva on the path to enlightenment, it occurred to me, Suppose I divide my thoughts into two classes. And then as he looked, he said, I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation or simplicity, thoughts of non-ill will or loving kindness, and thoughts of non-cruelty or compassion. So he, there he was looking at his mind, and he said, oh, I've got all of these thoughts coming through. Some are thoughts of desire, ill will, cruelty, coming through my mind. Just be, before he was enlightened, he had been practicing for some time, and those thoughts arose. And then he saw these other thoughts of simplicity and, uh, and kindness and compassion. And he goes on to say, um, As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, and the thought of sensual desire arose in me, I understood this thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. It leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from nibbana. And when I considered this, is, this leads to my own affliction, it's, it subsided in me. Now that's pretty cool if you just said, oh, this isn't so helpful, and then it subsided. That'd be pretty cool to have a practice like that. Oh, not so helpful. Okay, let's get rid of that one. But this is what happened. And the same happened when he looked at the thoughts of um, ill will and and cruelty. He said, these aren't, these aren't so helpful. And he, he saw, this is not leading to anything good. Don't feed it. And then he saw, as the sutta goes on a bit, um, 
it is. Um, as I abided thus diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of renunciation or simplicity arose in me. And I understood, which is the mind that can let go. And I understood thus, oh, this thought of renunciation has arisen in me. It does not lead to my own affliction, to others' affliction, or to affliction of both. It aids in wisdom, does not cause difficulties, and leads to nibbana. If I think and ponder upon this thought, even for a, a night, even for a day, even for a night and day, I see nothing to fear from it. And actually, here's one more interesting line. He says, but with excessive thinking and pondering, I might tire my body. And when the body is tired, the mind becomes strained. And when the mind is strained, it's far from concentration. So I steadied my mind internally, quieted it, brought it to singleness, and concentrated on it so my mind shouldn't be strained. And then he did the same thing with thoughts of non-ill will, with loving kindness and compassion. And he says, oh, these are good thoughts. But it's interesting to note in this, in this discourse that he says, you know, you can't think too much about it. Yes, I've got to have a stay with this thought of loving kindness. I've got to, I've got to. Because the mind gets tired. So just to offer that to you if you're saying, I've got to fix my mind on the Dharma every moment. He says, don't wear yourself out. You know, just find some balance in it. But he does say, hmm, these are okay. These are good thoughts and I'm going to feed them. Okay, so there it is. What I'm trying to communicate with these three examples is that... Um, you have a choice. Not necessarily to get rid of those thoughts, but just the more you see, you don't have to feed them. You can hold them. You can bring some compassion for the mind that gets caught. You can just be the awareness that is seeing all of this stuff that the mind is churning out and you have a choice not to feed it and to feed the ones in a skillful way that do serve you. The, the word vipassana, as probably many of you know, the word vipassana, the kind of meditation that, we, uh, that we're doing here, mindfulness meditation, also known as vipassana meditation, literally means to see things clearly, to see things as they are, which means to see what the mind, where the mind goes, and to not get confused in getting hooked and believing all of the thoughts that come through it. But the idea that we have a choice, as I reflected back on my my own journey, and I'm going to invite you to reflect on yours in, in a little while, there have been moments of choice, even before getting into meditation, that um, somehow we can go in a direction 
that leads to um, seeing clearly and not getting so um, hooked and lost in these painful thoughts. And I, I wanted to share a few more of these moments in my life in those earlier days and also in, invite you to do the same in, in a little while. One, during this time, I was, um, no, I had already, um, I had not yet uh, graduated. Uh, it was before that the song came to me. But when I was in college, uh, I graduated in 1967 from Queens College. And again, I was in one of these kind of down periods. I had a, I had a fair amount of depression when I was growing up. We'd just go through periods of it. And I was reading a lot of uh, Camus and Sartre and existential <laughs> philosophy. And, um, and every... Uh, it came down to what is the point? I didn't see any point in being alive. Um, be careful how much you take in of that stuff as a steady diet. And every conversation I had pretty much for oh, a few months uh, with my friends was, was kind of, you know, no point, no exit, we're stuck here, let's get out of here. And my friends kind of, you know, kept their distance from me, okay. And one day, I write about this in Awakening Joy, one day in the Queens College cafeteria, it's a big cafeteria, you know, at least... In my own mind, I think of like at least 750 or more people uh, could hold in that cafeteria. In the middle of this downtime, I looked at this sea of, of people, each in their own private conversation, you know, some laughing, some being very serious, some reading, some being very, being alone and just a whole sea of humanity. And it crossed my mind in a moment, hmm, here are all of these people, all of these human beings, and the one thing I intuit that we all have in common is we all want to be happy. And then the thought occurred to me, hmm, that's all most any of us want. And it occurred to me, I was trying to see if there's any kind of meaning to being around in life. And it occurred to me, the one thing that might give my life meaning is to bring a little bit more happiness into the world. And I... I had no idea how I was going to do that because I was not a happy camper. But I thought, well, that would give some life, some meaning to life. And I kind of, in my heart, said, I don't know how I'm going to, how, how one does it, and I don't know how I'll do it, but... I would really love to find happiness so I could 
share it with others, because that's the only thing I could think of that would give life meaning. And in a way, that kind of set me on a particular journey. You know, if somebody told me then, oh, you're going to write a book called Awakening Joy, I would have laughed, you know, doubled over. Are you kidding? You know. So there was just this moment of seeing clearly and saying, oh, wow, that might be a good thing to do. I don't know where the thought came from, but there it was. Mm-hmm. And around that time, a couple of years later, I um, again uh, was was going through a, a particularly acute, difficult um, experience, and I was facing my deepest fear. And I, uh, it, it was it was the lowest point in my life, um, and I again write about this in in my book, and I'll share it here since I write about it. I was on uh, a psychedelic trip that went bad. And I screamed for help. And my dear friend and uh, housemate, uh, uh, Richard, and his girlfriend, um, Gary, uh, who I was very close with, they heard me scream, and they came in, and I, I was in another world, and they each took a hand, and I, and I saw them, and I said, oh, don't leave me, please don't leave me. And they said, we're not going to leave you. And I went back and forth like that, oh, about 15, 20 times, don't leave me, don't leave me. And finally, each time they said, we won't leave you, and I got it, oh, they're not going to leave me. And not only did I get it, but I felt their love and their presence. And I really let that love in. And I thought, oh, wow, they really love me. And something shifted in that experience when I let their love in. And I started to see as I as I got uh, further into this whole experience, that the mind went down a real rabbit hole and it can get out as well. And then I had this, it was a turning point in my life. This is 1969. Uh, I realized that I was just creating a self-fulfilling prophecy by saying, oh, Nothing's going to work out. And that that's the energy that one puts out. And we know about confirmation bias now. If you look for how nothing is going to work out, that's what you'll keep on creating. And your mind, brain won't even recognize when things are working out. That's just how it works. But I did see that our minds create a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I had this epiphany. It was like, it was actually at um, about three or four in the morning uh, when I went through the, 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 the darkest places. And I was listening um, to 
if you're old enough and somebody just mentioned it last week old enough to uh, and lived in New York there was um, a radio station WBAI and the the who somebody did somebody just mention that last week somebody came up here I no it wasn't here and the mm, I haven't thought of that this way this the, the DJ was this guy John Zachary who was also a TV personality he was the guy who did the monster mash you know he, it was a mash. It was the monster mash. Well, John Zacherly was a very cool guy. And at 3 a.m., just giving you the softest Dharma talk, <laughs> he didn't call it Dharma, right to your heart and saying, you know, it's okay. You can, you can make it any way you want. And he played this song uh, by a group called Traffic. Some of you might know the group Traffic. And this song was, uh, You Can All Join In. Here it goes, something like, Here's a little song you can all join in with. It's very simple and I hope it's new. Make your own words up if you want to. Any old words that you think will do. And it goes on to, I'll sing the last verse, which was the kicker. That said, Here's a little world you can all join in with. It's very simple, and I hope, and it's very simple, and I hope it's new. Make your own world up if you want to. Any old world that you think will do. And then the words go, love you. It's nothing new. There's someone much worse off than you are. Help me set them free. Just be what you want to be. And in the culmination of this seeing that I was creating my own self-fulfilling prophecy, I thought, wow, I can make up any world I want. And if I go about thinking about how everything is not going to work out, that's the energy I put out, what if I imagine or pretend that things will work out. And more specifically, what if I pretend or act as if that I'm really lovable? <laughs> that was the little experiment that I gave to myself. Because I was so focused on how boring I was and how whatever. my fr- I had good friends, but new people particularly, particularly girls, you know. Um, what if I just imagined that I was lovable and that people enjoyed being around me? And it was, my mind and my heart were very open, so it stayed with me, and I said, I am going to experiment for one week. I'm going to pretend that I'm lovable and that people just really enjoy being around me. I had nothing to lose, right? (laughs) So I did, and lo and behold, the experience was so still in me that it was in my consciousness, because it's not easy to break those habits just all of a sudden, but it was very 
powerfully in me. And I had this little exp- uh, experiment where I wasn't so focused on me. And I started to tune into, oh, who's this person here? And really enjoy focusing not on me, but on someone else. And lo and behold, people seem to enjoy being around me. And I felt I was on to something. That experiment is now coming on 50 years. It's not like all of a sudden, oh, that's it for the rest of my life. Because habits die hard. So it wasn't until another, oh, four years, uh, almost five years, that I discovered the Dharma and a way to train my mind. But I knew if I could train my mind so that I didn't believe those thoughts that said, you know, you're just a drag, you know, and believe the ones that said, you know, you're all right, that I, I could shift the way I thought of myself, because I didn't like myself very much. But there I was, I saw a path, and when I, you've heard me say before, when I first encountered the Dharma and practice, and uh, Joseph, in 1974, Joseph Goldstein was saying, it's actually possible to not be run by your thoughts. You can train your mind and train your heart. And I said, I'm going for it. I'm going for it. I believed him because there was something in what he said. I said, this is it. I know that the mind creates any reality. And he's saying it's possible to train if you just sit down and look at your mind, as his teacher and my teacher, Manindraji, used to say, if you want to understand the mind, just sit down and observe it. And that was the next piece where I just decided both in that experiment and then later in the, uh, when, I, when I encountered the Dharma, I'm going for it. It's not like you had to get, I had to get rid of those thoughts. Oh, it's possible to train. So the thing is that I want to communicate, and we'll get into a little bit more, is that we have a choice here. I hope you realize that why else would you come and sit and be still and pay attention to your breath or your mind or whatever if you didn't think there was some value to doing that? And the mind and the heart can be trained. It takes patience because there's deeply ingrained habits. It takes persistence, determination, aditana in the teachings, and it takes um, some kind of faith or trust. But as you do it, as it says in, uh, in that discourse, that same discourse that I read from before, where um, uh, he said, the Buddha said, there's two kinds of thoughts, is the famous line that I use in Awakening Joy, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, 
that will become the inclination of their mind. Or as modern neuroscience says, neurons that fire together, wire together. That we start to, little by little, start to create new neural pathways, no matter how deeply ingrained the habits have been. And when you think, well, what's the choice? More greed, hatred, and delusion? Or more generosity, kindness, and wisdom. Why not go for that? So what I wanted to present were a few different ways that we can do this and that you probably already do it. Mm. One, as I'm, I've been pointing out, uh, is uh, often called reframing, where whatever your circumstance is, I spoke about this last week when I talked about having your life be held in a spirit of practice, that whatever is happening to you can be held in a spirit of waking up and growing and understanding more. So as an example, I was just speaking with uh, a good friend uh, uh, the, just this week, who went through a very traumatizing experience where they were um, very much in a, uh, a deep, committed relationship with, with somebody and they were just about to go traveling for... Uh, for the next six months or so, and then uh, get married and have a family. And this person is just really, uh, they've got a lot of radiant energy and they were so excited. And I saw them, um, uh, we did a Skype Skype call this week, and they said, um, you will never believe what happened. I said, what? And they said, the night before their trip, their partner said, I can't do this and I have to end the relationship. Tickets bought, all kinds of plans all over the world, not to mention they were going to live happily ever after and have children and all. My jaw dropped. She said yes. And there were many, many tears. She said, you know, it's been a week of, uh, last week and a half, have been lots and lots of tears, but I'm, I'm okay. I said, really? She said, yeah, I've, I've gotten such great support and I have the Dharma. And she had uh, had a very... Um, powerful experience sitting uh, a month-long, this last month-long retreat at Spirit Rock with me. And she said, you know, I couldn't imagine a more dysregulating, disorienting experience. But as I think about it, thank goodness it happened now and not a year from now with a baby in tow, and all of a sudden 
my life up in the air after a year of commitment. And she said, I'm going to get through this. And she, she will. She said, I have all the support I need and this will make me stronger. And thank goodness, one, this happened on the front end, and two, I have the Dharma. It was so beautiful. And um, by and through the through the talk, we were by the end of it, we were just kind of we were laughing together, and we were, um, you know, she said, just make space for it all, you know, and it was it was so clear how we can choose even the the worst circumstances to hold things in a different way, instead of being just the victim, and sometimes we are the victim of experience, of awful things. And so I'm not dismissing that or diminishing it. We're saying, oh, just get over it. We have to go through our trauma and our hurt and our um, microaggressions or our different ways and stand up for what's true and what's right. But how we process it, we have some choice here. As the Buddha says in one of my favorite teachings, suffering, when skillfully processed, can lead to faith, can lead to deepening compassion, can lead all the way to freedom. And I've asked this many times, I'm going to ask it just again uh, here right now, how many people have been motivated by suffering in their life to look for deeper answers and meaning and brought them to their spiritual life? That's how it works. While you're in the middle of it, you say, this must be some mistake, and if I were running the world, I'd do a much better job than this. But there you are. That's how we often grow. What she said, by the way, and we both came to was, it's, it wasn't about me. She said, years ago, it would have been, what did I do? How was I deficient? How was I defective? But it was so clear, this is not about me. This is about him. And she could even feel compassion, along with an awful lot of rage, uh, which is understandable. But um, we can reframe and process it, almost anything. That's how forgiveness can work, too. In a moment, we can be holding on, holding on, holding on. How dare they? And sometimes you have to, go, you do have to go through the pain and the trauma and the hurt. But at some point when you realize, oh, I'm the one that's suffering here, and if somehow I can bring some understanding, some compassion, some um, getting into the other reality. Uh, I think I, I forget if I mentioned it here last week, My uh, uh, this 13-year-old, and I mentioned about the perspective helmet here last week. 
Yeah. For those who aren't here, my, this 13-year-old um, uh, girl said, I have an invention that's going to, uh, that could bring world peace. I said, really? She said, yeah, it's called a perspective helmet. You put it on and you understand the perspective of the person that you're speaking to, that you're dealing with. I said, I think you got it. World peace, just around the corner, if you can just figure out how to make it work. But in a moment when you can understand somebody's confusion and pain and conditioning and, yeah, just the, the mind, the prison that they're locked in, the heart can open and forgive in time. Or if you're not ready to forgive, then just wishing you could forgive is a start. There's something wholesome in that. Oh, I wish I could forgive. Okay. Instead of feeling frustrated, I can't forgive and I want to forgive, I wish I could forgive and tune into that wholesomeness. Even that starts to soften, starts to thaw the heart. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned here before about the refractory period that Paul Ekman coined when you are really lost in your in your the prison of your mind and you've gotten activated and you're gone and while you're gone you have no choice you are confirming your worst projection on the world and at some point when the refractory period ends you wake up and often is the feeling of wow what where was i i lost my mind and sometimes while in that refractory pe- period people do awful things and they spend a lifetime having to pay the price of but practice shortens that refractory period it's been shown that mindfulness is a lot of the things about mindfulness research is that it shortens that period and you wake up sooner isn't that cool? Isn't that a blessing? And so in that moment where you wake up, you have a choice to say, how, what a warped, awful mind I have. Oh, when am I going to get rid of this mind? It's so disgusting. I can't stand my mind. I see it. That's one way to go. I don't recommend that route. Another way is, wow, I was really lost. Oh, wow, I've woken up. Wow, how amazing. I can see clearly. I can see clearly now. The rain is gone. I can see clearly. And celebrate the fact that you can see. I woke up. So this is for all of you meditators who see your mind and get very disgusted by it. Don't go there. As Pema Chodron so beautifully says, take delight in the awareness that sees the dukkha, that sees the suffering. Take delight that the awareness can see and wake up. Oh, wow, 
I'm not in the prison of my mind anymore. How wonderful. You don't have to get rid of your mind. Don't try to. All of those thoughts will keep on coming. They even came to the Buddha after he was enlightened. And each time as, as Mara tried to confuse him or trick him, and each time there's a vin, about 20 vignettes in the Pali Canon of Mara coming and visiting the Buddha after he's enlightened. And each time the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. And Mara slinks away, you know, curses, foiled again. Mm-hmm. So just to see you have a choice how to deal with this crazy mind that we all have been issued. Mm-hmm. And for me, the wake-up thought and practice, which I've shared here many times, when I realize I've been confused, is to, if I can remember, and thankfully much of the time I do in, in recent years, is, oh, what thought am I believing right now? Because as soon as I ask that and remember to ask it, oh, what th- or what story, I'll see you one or the other, what, what thought am I believing? Oh, I just believed that I was pathetic. <laughs> it's just a thought. Oh, I just believed that nothing's going to work out. It's just a thought. Oh, I just believed that um, people are going to disappoint me. And sometimes they do, but don't keep on looking for it. Oh, I keep on believing I'll always be, and you can fill in the blank, or I'll never, and you can fill in the blank, to see you have a choice not to believe your thoughts. So, I just want to reflect, offer you this reflection, and then I'll share the song I haven't forgotten, um, and then we'll see if we have any time left. But just go inside for a moment. And if you happen to be going through a hard time, or if you find yourself caught or stuck in a particular belief system, is there another way, is there a choice, how you can hold this in a different perspective? or how you can hold the suffering, the dukkha, with a wiser, more compassionate understanding. What thought or story do you believe and what would it be like to not give it energy, to pretend even that you're a Buddha or you're wise, or you're not who you thought you were, or they. Just bring the wisest part of you to hold that confused one inside. And if you have some kind of an inkling of how you can hold this with compassionate understanding.
practice it for this week. Give yourself that experiment to see what it would be like to hold it in a different way and support the well-being that you truly want. Okay, now for the song. It's been a long time since I brought the guitar to uh, Thursday night. Want you to know when I first came here to the monastery and I said to Hung Shur, um, I wasn't sure if it was going to fit because us being here because I loved music and, and I said, hey, you know, what if I wanted to bring a guitar and have it in, uh, included in the Dharma talk. And he said, yeah, we can, we can work with that too. And then as it turned out, um, when he heard us sing at one point, it was my 50th birthday. Wow, that's 20, over 21 years ago. And he heard us sing together and he said, oh, this is real Dharma. And he picked up the guitar and now he has CDs and writes songs and... Uh, because he was under the impression that it wasn't very monk-like, uh, and he gave gave away. He was a he was a he is a great musician. So he he had given away his guitar when he first became a monk. And Master Wa, the the master, said, "Who told you to do that?" He said, "I thought I was supposed to." And he said, "No, you shouldn't have done that." You know, but finally he picked it up. So guitars belong in this place. So, here it is. It's all in your mind. When people aren't there And you want someone to care And there's nothing really good That you can find Just be patient, let it flow Cause in the end you'll know That up or down It's all in your mind You can grumble and complain And think of all your pain Until you feel That life is just a bind But you won't be really free Until you let it be Cause good or bad The trip is in your mind Well we've got colors for our eyes And music for our ears And lessons we keep learning all the time And our hearts can be touched Why there's so very much To wake up to every second of our lives If you're gray and feeling down And can't seem to come around 
feel your whole life is just one big boring grind. Well, it'll stay there, that's for sure, and you'll never find a cure until you see that it's all in your mind. Your whole life is up to you. Do with it what you want to. You just have to seek, and you will find. That everything's within your grasp. Be here now, not in your past, and make it happy, 'cause it's all in your mind. Make it happy, 'cause it's all in your mind. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so we just have a, a few few minutes. If there's any question, comment uh, before before we close. Uh, first dibs on buying those CDs. Yes. Oh, it was very cool. It was like it was amazing to see how it was created and the engineer, the seven takes, and they cut and paste, and uh, uh, it will it will be. Out when somewhere uh, I think uh, uh, towards the end of the year, but I'll let you know definitely. <laughs> yes. Well, this, you know, the, I agree with most of what you said. The problem with like the whole like perspective thing, like seeing something from someone else's perspective, mm -hmm. like I would not want to see things from our president's perspective, frankly. Okay. So actually, you would not want to. But the secret to not having your heart closed in bitterness and hatred is understanding what goes on in that mind and that heart. It's not saying you agree with the perspective, but if you can inhabit for a few moments the pain, the confusion, the smallness. That would be in somebody's heart who actually hurts others, knowingly and willfully. For me, yeah, I wouldn't want to be living in that mind or heart. But when I can just imagine for a glimpse, instead of hatred and bitterness and anger, I feel compassion. And thank goodness I'm not in that. Prison in the mind. So I'd say that's the secret. Yes, behind one last one, and then we. Did you just touch a little bit on pity? Thank goodness I'm not in. Say again. Did you just touch a little bit on pity? On what? Pity. Pity. Oh, pity. Thank goodness I'm not that. Pity is different from compassion. Yeah, right. Yes, in 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 the in the in the Buddhist teachings, pity is the near enemy of compassion, because pity, there is this smallness and a kind of contraction away, whereas compassion is really 
understanding you don't have to hang out there for a long time. I wouldn't suggest hanging out there for a long time. But to to step inside somebody's shoes and feel the pain is different than, than pitying them. There's a kind of condescension in pitying. And as uh, I love this line by Martin Luther King, who says, you have no moral authority over those who can feel your underlying contempt. So if there's this contempt, which is right around the corner from pity, uh, which is natural, of course. Who wouldn't have it's part of being human to have contempt, to have outrage, to have a complete, you know, um, ill will. That's part of being human. But to not live in that place and to see if you can transform that into, as I often quote Jesus saying, forgive them, they know not what they do. There's a wise heart. And that's where pity turns into compassion. Oh, God. Okay, so, (laughs) good luck. And know that um, it's all in your mind. We're going to finish in a moment, so if you could stay, that would be really great. Um, And uh, just for a moment, come back to your own heart. And now, turning towards your own heart, your own mind, appreciate it. There must be some goodness there that would bring you to come and practice here together. Celebrate it. And feed it, nourish it with appreciation and Gratitude. May I open to all the goodness inside. May I see clearly and more and more learn to share my love well and be kind to myself as well as others. And then focusing on this room or wherever you are listening, may our sharing the Dharma here touch each of us and ripple out in our lives and spread and be beneficial to all beings everywhere. May all beings find true happiness and peace. May they share their love well. May they be free of suffering and know true freedom. And may this earth that holds us all feel the benefit of all of our caring, this earth and all the living beings in it. Thank you very much for 
your kind attention and uh, have a good week. Keep remembering you have a choice and then share your goodness with everyone around. See ya. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.